You all can be seated. You can open up your copy of the Bible to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at essentially the second half of that text this morning, of that chapter of the scriptures. Uh, but I wanted to uh, say thank you as usual for you, or to you for your generosity as a church family, for your continued uh, donations and gifts to the general fund of our church. Uh, that you can, there's multiple ways you can give. Uh, it doesn't just have to be on Sunday, but if you want to give on the Lord's Day, there's boxes in the back of the room here. Uh, you can mail checks in you can give online if that's easier for you either on your phone or, or on the computer as well you can just go to christcovenant.org forward slash give but uh, thank you for your generosity and what it enables uh, last fiscal year we had a large surplus and we uh, thought through some missional ways to spend it we thought through some ways to even improve some things around the facility here one thing I wanted to note a small thing that we did with those funds that I just wanted to clarify if you kind of scratched your head if you were paying attention as you came in this morning in the parking lot. One of the things that we did is we got some banners made up uh, to go on the seven light poles that are out in our parking lot. Uh, there was a little mix-up with the sign company, and so every single one of the seven poles says godliness on it. Uh, when we're really trying to have that be one of the poles, then the other six cover some of the other six values of our church, like grace, love, truth, joy, things like that. So if you came in this morning to say godliness, 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 we do care about godliness, uh, but it's not the only thing that we care about. And godliness is downstream from some other things <laughs> that we like to emphasize as well. And so we're working with them to get those corrected, and I think the correct ones will be up uh, this week. But those will just be some visual reminders to us or to anybody who may join us of the things that we value as a church, things we want to particularly mark us as a people of God who are gathered here in this time and place. So thank you for your generosity, both past and present and future, as greatly appreciated. Well, I am by no means an old man. Some may disagree with that. I'm pushing 40. I'll turn 40 next year. And it's made me start as I get older to think about my health, my physical health, some things I usually would not have thought about when I was younger. And one of those areas of life that I think I need to think about more, and maybe many of us do, or many of you do as well in the room, is the health of my heart. Uh, heart disease, if I, if I am no medical expert, but I looked some of these things up uh, this week, Heart disease is the number one killer of people in our nation. Uh, it is the primary cause of death uh, that outranks any others. And heart disease, it has various uh, manifestations, various things. It's kind of a broad category, but it is the number one killer. And often we are unaware of heart problems, aren't we? Even if they exist, even if there's something deeply wrong with our physical heart, we often don't realize it. We don't know that anything is wrong with us. We're often unaware until it's too late. We have a heart attack. We have a stroke. We have something uh, catastrophic happen to us like that. And part of the reason we're unaware of it is that it develops slowly, typically. There may be uh, like a congenital thing that people have uh, structurally in their heart, things like that, but usually heart problems develop slowly over the span of a person's life through uh, uh, their diet, through certain factors of how they live their life, or they don't. Uh, but it develops slowly, and we're often unaware of it. But there are, if we look for them, there actually are warning signs. There actually are things that can be seen, things that can be tested. There's things that can 
can help us discover if we have problems with our heart, if we have heart disease. And thank God, there are actually treatments typically that can address those things. Uh, There's things that we can shift in our life. There's things that we can take. There's things that we can do or stop doing that can help address the problem uh, that we have with our heart. And I mention that because today's text, you're going to see very clearly as we enter into it, speaks to the sickness of the human heart or at least the potential of it, right? And as we're going to see, the author of Hebrews, as he speaks about the heart and the hardness of heart that can develop, he's not talking about the the four-chambered organ that beats inside of our chest, right? He's not talking about a physical organ. The heart that he's speaking of is that that non-physical part of us, that that deepest core part of us as human beings uh, that that drives what we do, that drives how we act. Uh, That is what he's going to speak to. And so as we come to Hebrews 3, we're going to start at verse 7 uh, here in just a moment. But I want to make sure, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks as we've started to go through this book, I want to make sure you know where we're at in the Bible, what's going on here before we read it. So the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it, but we do uh, assume, it seems clear, that he's writing to a group of early Christians who were ethnically Jewish, thus the name Hebrews, that, that he was writing to these people who had come to faith in Jesus, but who were tempted to fall away, who were tempted to abandon Jesus, abandon the setting of their hope in Jesus alone, and to, to go back to adhering to the law, to go back to their old ways of life. And he, he's speaking to them, calling them to persevere in the faith, calling them to press on in faith and obedience to Christ. And what we saw last week, just most immediately preceding this, is that the author was trying to help them see that Jesus is better than Moses. Moses would have been a revered man. Uh, He still should be, I think, a revered man amongst us. But he was trying to help them see that Jesus is superior to him. The guy that gave us the law, Jesus is better than him. So listen to Jesus. And when Pastor Larry preached, he ended last week by reading the end of verse 6, where he said he had been talking about how the people of God are like the house of God, or the household, the family of God. And that text ended by saying, We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And so he was saying that there's a way to know if we are part of the household of God. And it's going to be that we hold fast our confidence, that we hang on to it, that we, we don't abandon our trust in the Lord. We don't let go of it. We don't walk away from it. And so in today's text, as we pick up in verse 7, he's just going to expand upon that idea. He's going to elaborate on it, that, that we are part of the family of God. We're part of the people of God if there's certain markers in us, there's certain evidences and proofs that we are part of the people of God. You're going to note that he quotes, as I, as I read this, he quotes Psalm 95 pretty extensively, like in verses 7 through 11. He's going to be quoting back to Psalm 95, and then he quotes it again down in verse 15. And so uh, we'll talk about that after I read this, but I want to go ahead and read this text of Scripture. I'm going to start Hebrews 3, verse 7, and I'll go to the end of the chapter, so all the way to verse 19. So if you have a copy of Scripture, it's helpful to follow with it with your eyes so you can see it even as you hear it read. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he writes this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who had left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this text and the message of today this way, and then we'll walk back through this. Uh, I would summarize the message of what the author was trying to say in the second half of Hebrews 3 by saying this, is that the remedy for hardness of heart is consistency of Christian exhortation. The remedy for hardness of heart is consistency of Christian exhortation. I think you'll understand more what I mean as we walk through this text. And I want to use for our outline today to try to unpack this uh, just a, a metaphor of the medical terminology or ideas, if we're thinking about the, the non-physical heart, it could be helpful to, to kind of use categories of what a doctor may do for us with our physical heart. And so I, I want to, uh, from this text, show you a warning, a screening, and a treatment plan when it comes to hardness of heart. A, a warning, a screening, and a treatment plan. And so in, uh, we'll start with the warning. This is kind of the overarching tone, the overarching feel of this text is warning. It's a, a caution. And so in this text, it, it's like the author is trying to warn the readers of the danger of hardness of heart. It's a simple thing he's trying to get across, but a weighty thing. that He's trying to warn them about the dangers of hardness of heart. And it's like a doctor. If you were to go into, a, a, let's say I go for a physical next year when I'm turning 40, and the doctor is trying to warn me about the, the importance of taking care of my heart and the, the dangers of what could come if I don't. And the heart, how, if heart disease sets in, there's bad things that could happen to me, right? Uh, if we hear those types of warnings from a doctor, it is to our own peril if we ignore them, right? If we just think, oh, that's not for me. Other people may need to worry about that. I'm fine. We would always be wise to hear the warnings of informed people, right? And this author and the Spirit of God are informed people. That is an understatement. They are warning us about the dangers of hard-heartedness. And so I want to show you how he does that in this text. We'll have to kind of fly over this, give an overview of how he tries to warn them. But the way that he does it, the way that he tries to, to warn his original readers is he actually points them all the way back to the generation of Moses. He points them all the way back uh, 1,400 years prior to the days of Moses and the ancient Israelites when God had led them out of Egypt. This is what happened. You can pick up some of these terminology that he uses from Psalm 95 to describe what happened. But uh, a few things that he notes as he points back to them and their hardness of heart. He says in verse 9, 
as he quotes Psalm 95, that their fathers had put God to the test, right? Even though they had seen his works, they had seen his power, they had seen his mercy, he says that they put God to the test. And if you want to read more about the backstory of that and what actually happened, we don't have time to get into all of it here, but there's two chapters of the scriptures I think he's pointing back to, the events of. They'd be Exodus chapter 17 and Numbers chapter 14. So Exodus 17, Numbers 14. Those were two pivotal events uh, where God's people tested God. It's, it's One had to do with water and they weren't getting water and they complained and they they grumbled about it. And then the other was when he finally brought them up to the cusp of the promised land. And the spies came back to tell them of the dangers that were in the land. And they became frightened and terrified. And they refused to go in. They would not do what God said. They would not trust him enough to go into the land. And so they put God to the test, verse 9 says. If you jump down to the end of the, the text of today, those last few verses, if you look at verse 16, The way he summarizes what that generation did is that even though they had heard the good news, had heard God's promises, they rebelled. That's the word that he uses, that there was a rebellion against God, right? He says in verse 18 that they were disobedient. That's an adjective he uses to describe them. There was a disobedience that marked them as the people of God. And then in the very last verse, he says that they had a pervasive unbelief in their hearts. So there was action that was disobedient, but even in their hearts, even in the core of who they were, there was unbelief. And what he is recounting, the reason he brings back that that story of the people of Egypt and how God had saved them out of the hand of Pharaoh. He led them across the Red Sea and parted the waters and all those things. The reason he brings that story up is because you see in this text in verse 11, And down in verse 19, that to that generation, to those people who had walked on the bed of the Red Sea, uh, who had experienced the deliverance of God, that very generation, most of them did not actually enter the promised land, right? Most of the people who walked along the bottom of the Red Sea did not walk across the Jordan River and go into Canaan. Most of them, their bodies fell in the desert, in the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan, right? God, as he was provoked by their disobedience, as he saw their hardness of heart set in and their their rejection of him, their rebellion against him, God, it says in verse 11, swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's rest that I want to give to them in some sense that I have promised to their descendants, but them, like their disobedience, their hardness of heart, as a result of that, I will not allow them entrance into the promised land. They are going to die in the wilderness. They will not go in. And so they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And I want to point out to you, though, something interesting, because this could feel just like an ancient story, like the author is just doing this to uh, just to kind of point them back to an, an old story and just kind of learn a lesson from it. But I would point out to you the way that he does this, the way that the author of Hebrews tries to point them back to that Exodus generation and to God's not allowing them to enter into the rest that he had promised, is he does it through Psalm 95. Like he, he doesn't just quote back to Numbers 14 and Exodus 17. He does it 
through Psalm 95. And I think that he does that for a reason. I have a slide that may be helpful for some visual learners. If you could imagine a timeline, so moving from left to right, uh, we are on the right. We're, we are living in today, 2022. Uh, we are reading something that was written maybe around AD 65, something like that, uh, this book of Hebrews. And that author Instead of just quoting back to the days of Exodus and quoting Numbers 14 or and quoting Exodus 17, he actually quotes Psalm 95. And he, he does it for a very particular reason. And the reason he does it is because he's wanting them to see that the, the, that author of Psalm 95, he's going to later say that it's David who wrote that. That author who wrote maybe around 1000 B.C., he, the one who wrote that, was trying to point the people of his day back to the example of the Israelites. And then he was trying to speak to the people in his day, a thousand BC, and say, guys, remember what happened to them? Like how there was hardness of heart in them, how they had heard the promises of God, but then they defied him and they tested him and they rejected him. And remember the judgment that came upon them? He's trying to say, whoever wrote Psalm 95, which it seems to be David, he's trying to say the same threat remains for us. It's not just something that was a threat to the ancient Israelites. There is a threat to us. There is a threat to our soul, 1000 BC. That's why he, he, this author really picks up on the word today right? Uh, that the author of Psalm 95 uses the word today. Like today, if we harden our hearts like they did back then, if we rebel against God, if we do that today, there is judgment that can come upon us. There is an inability that we will have to enter the rest of God, to, to enter into heaven itself. And Psalm 95, I would note for you, he's going to talk about this more next week in next week's text. Psalm 95 was written to people who were already in the promised land, right? They were already living in that land, but there was still a rest out ahead of them, a heavenly city, a heavenly home. And the author of Psalm 95 is trying to tell them, hey, listen up, everyone. Like, we're in the, the physical land, but if we have hardness of heart and unbelief that perseveres in us, we will not enter the heavenly promised land. We will not enter into the heavenly city someday. And so the author of Hebrews, as he writes in AD 65, is trying to help the, his audience here and, and understand that this threat of hard-heartedness is something that is pervasive, that is ongoing throughout human history. It's not just something that the ancient Israelites had to deal with. It's something that God's people in every generation need to be aware of. We need to be aware of today, that the threat of hardness of heart. And so he, he picks up that timelessness. And so he says then, he can quote Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews, can quote Psalm 95 about hardness of heart and God's not entering the rest and say to his audience, to his contemporaries, verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's a, a threat that pers persists in 1000 BC. There's a threat that persists in AD 65, right? As he's writing this letter of Hebrews. But what I want to impress upon you is that this threat still remains today, 2022. 
That it's not just something for the people of 65 AD. It is something for us to be aware of in 2022 AD. That there is this threat of hardness of heart and a rejection of God that can lead to a falling away, lead to a refusal for us to enter the rest of God. And the way that I would ground that, beyond just showing you that this author told his generation that, I want to show you and draw your attention to how this text starts. We read something you may have totally missed it. I missed it the first several times I read this. Did you note how he introduces the Psalm 95 quote? He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, right? Like, as the Holy Spirit says. This isn't just something that the Holy Spirit said a long time ago to a certain group of people. When the Spirit of God speaks, when he has spoken, he continues to speak through those very words. And so Psalm 95 in its message was true when it was written, it was true when it was quoted by the author of Hebrews, and it is true today. That if we have a hardness of heart that develops within us, there is an inability to enter the final rest of God. That is as true today as it was then, as it was in the days of Moses. And this is no hollow warning. Like this, there's no just empty threat of God. This idea of not being able to enter the rest of God is nothing to trifle with. Like I I cannot convey to you the weight of this text. Like the, the inability to enter the heavenly rest of God, there is nothing more at stake than that. Right? And if he's telling us there is a way you could be forbidden from it. There's a way you could, it could be withheld from you. Like it would be wise for us to listen to that. To take it seriously. To, to contemplate the, what is being said by God and what is being said by this author. Because verse 11, he notes that in Psalm 95 it says that God swore in his wrath they will not enter my rest. This is a certainty of for, that, that God is saying. He swears to it. It's not just, hey, I might change my mind about this. God is putting himself on the dotted line saying, this, I will not let those who have a hardness of heart, who reject me, who walk away from me, who fall away from me, I will not let them enter my rest. That is so, like that is staggering. And it could happen to any of us. Like he says in verse 12, take care brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This is not just something that some Christians need to listen to. That, that some, I mean, those Christians, they, like, they're the ones who are really questionable and they need to listen to this, this word of God. All of us need to. Every single one of us need to know my heart could become hardened. My heart could fall away from the Lord. This, I need to take this seriously. I need to, to address this as I see it take place in my heart. And so there's this warning that he is trying to give in this text as he looks back to the, the, the Exodus generation, as he quotes Psalm 95, and now he applies it to his hearers. There's this warning that he's trying to get across them, that hardness of heart, a pervasive, persistent hardness of heart leads to a falling away from God and a refusal for God to allow entrance into his heavenly rest. And so this should lead us, I hope, to reflection. It has led me to reflection this week to think, might I be experiencing a hardness of heart? Might the people I love, might my fellow church members, might my family be experiencing a hardening of heart? There is much at stake. 
for us as we contemplate this and as we heed this warning. But the second thing that I, I want to, to show you in this text is that it's not just a warning, but in many ways the author of Hebrews is trying to provide a screening of sorts for us. That there's this seriousness of a hardness of heart. There, there is nothing to trifle with. But then he uh, indirectly maybe tries to help us discern are those things true of me? Like, are there indicators in my life that there's a hardness of heart that is setting in, that maybe has set in to my life? And as, as you look at this text, and even as you look back to the generation he's referring to, the Exodus generation, there are certain glimpses we get of what hardness of heart actually looks like in real life. Like what it actually, how it actually manifests itself, right? If somebody has heart disease, there are tests that can be done. There are things that you can look for, that you can see indicators that, that these things are problems. There's questions that can be asked, levels that can be measured, tests that can be administered, things like that. And we ought to be wise enough, discerning enough to really evaluate ourselves, to think, are there these indicators in me? Are there, are there things that are signs of hardness of heart myself. And so I want to suggest to you from this text a few things that would be indicators of a hardness of heart, uh, whether it's in yourself or in other people, but I particularly want you to do some introspection today, to think, in my life, do I see these things uh, coming true? Do I see these things being manifest in my life? One of the first signs, I think, that, uh, that indicates a hardness of heart that you see in the ancient Israelites especially is a longing for the slavery of our past. And that, that seems like a weird idea, but when you go back and read some of the texts he's referring to and how God had rescued the Israelites from the, the, being under the thumb of Pharaoh and he delivered them from this oppression that they had been under, what happens very quickly when they start getting past the Red Sea and into the wilderness and as they get closer to the promised land is that they have a longing to go back to Egypt. They, they want to go back to their old way of life. They want to go back to being under the thumb of Pharaoh. They think that, living under his thumb, is better than the freedom of living under God and living in, among God's people in freedom. And so there, there's this longing that can start to develop in our hearts to go back to a previous way of life, to go back to the slavery of sin that we used to live in. If you go back and read Numbers chapter 14, they literally said in Numbers 14, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That was what they said. That's what their hearts wanted to do was to go back to slavery. And that can become true in our life as well where we face temptations to revert back to previous forms of sin. Uh, we we uh, face a, a, a longing. We have this desire within our hearts to return to previous ways of life, to go back to old wells that we used to drink from, to go back to, to sources of joy and, and attempts at happiness that we used to run after. We can feel a longing that deepens in our heart to go back to those things. And when that is taking place in our heart, I think what is happening is what he talks about in verse 13, where he says that we are being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That we are being tricked, we are being lied to, that going back there to those things, to those people, to those way of life is better than living God's way. That is a lie that, that Satan will throw into our face and try to plant into our hearts day by day by day that it is better to go back. 
Like, look at what this Christianity thing has gotten you. Is it really better? Is it, is it really better to live this way? And there's going to be a temptation to go back to the shallow joys of sin. The, what he'll call later the fleeting pleasures of sin. That is, if we start to experience those things intensely and start to give in to those longings and start to kind of water those longings, that is a sign that hardness of heart is starting to set in. Is a longing for the slavery of our past sin. But even more clear as an indicator of a hardness of heart would not just be what's happening in the internal world of me, the temptations I'm facing in my heart, but the actual actions I'm living out, the actual things I'm doing, the way I'm actually living my life. And so I would say the second indicator that there could be a heart problem, that there could be a hardness of heart setting in, is that you are starting to consistently disobey God. I'll just leave it as a simple category. They're starting to consistently disobey God. I would note, look at verse 10, what uh, Psalm 95 says that God speaks. It says that God says, I was provoked with that generation and said, and then hear what he says, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. That word always is important and I, I would note that for you. He's not just saying, you know, there was this momentary lapse like where they gave in to sin. There was this momentary lapse where they knew I wanted them to do this, but they just decided not to. Uh, it, this is not a momentary disobedience that God sees in people. But what he is uh, speaking to, what he's addressing, what he's responding to is an always going astray a pervasiveness of disobedience in life. And if you start to see in any domain of your life known areas where you know what God says, you have heard him speak clearly from his word of how he wants you to live your life, how he calls you to live as a Christian, you consistently refuse. Like you knowingly, unflinchingly keep saying no to God. Saying, I will not do that. I will not give that up. I will not start doing that. I will not do that, God. If there is a pattern of you always going astray, that is an indicator that hardness of heart is starting to set in. That is not something that a person with a soft heart to the Lord is going to continue to do again and again and again. And so if you see a perpetual, consistent disobedience in your life, that is a bad indicator of the state of your heart. And the last sign, I would say, of a hardness of heart would just be what he talks about in verse 19, where he uses the word unbelief. That there's a, when there's a hardness of heart, there's a growing unbelief in the heart of a person. There's a distrust of God that can develop in our hearts. You see it in those ancient Israelites? That they did not trust God enough to enter the promised land, to go up against strong enemies. They didn't trust him enough. They didn't even trust him at first to provide food and water for them. They did not trust his provision. They didn't trust his strength to do what he said he would do. And so there was unbelief that showed up in distrust. And I would ask you, is there a distrust in your life toward the Lord? Is there a lack of trust in the promises that he has made? Is there a lack of trust in his leadership, in his provision, his guidance of you? Another sign of unbelief could be starting to make demands of God. That is a sign of a hard heart. 
that happened with the Israelites where they started demanding water from Moses. They started demanding certain things. They thought that they, that's why he uses language of how they tested God. It's like they're saying, you know, if you're a real God, if they almost say this literally, if you go back and read some of those old accounts in Exodus 17 especially, it's like they're saying, God, if you're really among us, give us water. Like Moses, give us water. Like if you're real, do it. Like show it, prove it to us. Even though God has abundantly already shown his power and his care for them. There are these demands that they were making against God and demands of God. And sometimes we slip into that. Or we start uh, implicitly demanding things of the Lord. Like, God, if you are real, you will do this for me. Like, you will stop this. You will start this. You will keep this. That is a sign of a hard heart, not a soft heart. Unbelief can come out in grumbling against God. How often do we have that happen in our hearts and maybe become uh, coming out of our tongues in prayers to God or maybe even in speech to others where just like the ancient Israelites grumbled because of God's providence? Do we start to speak that way? Do we start to speak frustration toward God? There's, there can be a holy way to express confusion, disappointment to God, but when we start speaking grumbling words to him uh, of thanklessness and maybe even bitterness in our hearts towards God, that is a sign that ice is starting to overcome our heart. That on the edges of it is starting to overcome us, overwhelm us. And so there's unbelief can be a sign of a hardness of heart. So if those are signs of what unhealth looks like, what does health look like? Like what are we supposed to see in our life? I would point you to verse 14 uh, because screenings don't always just show us bad things, right? Sometimes they show, oh, there's actual health here. there's There's good progress here in this person's life. So if you look at verse 14, I think we get a glimpse of what health actually looks like. He says, we have come to share in Christ This is what he says we should see, a sign of health. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That is what he is saying is is an indication of health, an indication of a, a healthy heart that's not being hardened, is that we continue to hold our original confidence in Christ firm to the end. We hold fast to it and we keep holding on to it. Right? And what he says is health. What he shows as evidence of us sharing in Christ, us being united with Christ, is not things like just being in Christian community, just attending worship services, right? or reading my Bible, or things like that. He says what is an indicator, what you should be looking for, that's a sign of a healthy heart, is that you are holding fast your original confidence. That you are holding fast to the good news of Jesus that was preached to you, of his death and his resurrection. He is pointing to belief as a sign of health. Not just outward action, but of belief. The present, ongoing faith in Christ. That is what he is saying we should look for. What what he's saying is health is not sinlessness, right? Like that's not how we know if we're in Christ, if we're sharing in Christ. Isn't that I don't sin, Right? If that was the bar, none of us would have confidence that we're in Christ, right? So he's not saying look for a sinless person and there's a sign of a healthy heart. He's saying look for a person who holds fast their confidence in Jesus. That is the sign of a healthy heart, is that somebody is holding fast to Christ and the good news of him. And I want to speak to the folks in the room who have sensitive consciences. 
Because there are texts like this who when you hear these, these threats of judgment, when you hear these threats of I may not enter the rest of God, there can be this deep, deep fear and overwhelming burden that you feel in your heart. And using kind of medical terms where we can become kind of like hypochondriacs. Do you know that term where you think if any time, I, I used to be like this, anytime I would read a, a disease or hear something, I would think, oh, I have that. And I would go to WebMD and I would look, and, oh, like you may be tired sometimes. I'm tired sometimes, like I must have that. Uh, I don't think this text is to make all of us think every single one of us has a hard heart, right? He actually kind of assumes most of them don't yet have a hard heart. But he's saying what can lead to a hardness of heart. And he's saying what is a sign of health isn't sinlessness, but it is a repentance repentancelessness, if that's a word, that, that there's a lack of contrition, that there's a lack of faith in Jesus. That's a sign of an unhealthy heart. And so don't look at your life and see the presence of sin as a sign that you have a hard heart. But if you do see a lack of faith, if you do see a lack of resting upon the work of Jesus, that is a sign of a hard heart. And so make sure that you are looking, for the right, looking in the right places for assurance that you are indeed sharing in Christ. I want to say a word also uh, to those who, I don't know how to introduce this. I was thinking of this a lot this week. I think there are many of us, as we look at verse 14, that we need to be confronted with something in our life. I think there are many of us who, especially when we think of our loved ones, when we think of people like our children, our friends, and we know people who once long ago professed faith in Jesus. And we think they seemed sincere back then. Like they seemed to be born again back then. But then they have lived their life for years, maybe sometimes decades. And what we can be tempted to do sometimes is to think, you know what? They were so sincere back then. Like I can just kind of look past their present life and I'm just assuming that they're good with God. Because they did business with him back there. Like they, they did that transaction back there of how they lived their life. They had real faith, I think, back then. And what happens then is those people's hearts grows hard. And then we don't speak to them. We just assume that they are sharing in Christ. And we become silent. We don't confront them. We don't address them. We, that is not loving of us to do. Like, we, we need to apply this screening rightly. And even when there's people we love, even when there's people who have been dear friends of ours, people who are within our own family, if they are not continuing to hold fast to their original confidence, I would suggest to you, based on verse 14, they should not have confidence that they are sharing in Christ. Like, if they have had a hardness of heart set into their life, and they have shown a blatant disregard for Jesus, what we don't continue to say to them is, oh, you prayed a prayer a long time ago, you're good. We tell them, brother, sister, you have a hard heart. Like, there is evidence in your life that we all see, where we see that you have fallen away from the Lord. You should not have confidence that you are entering into the rest of God. And that is a hard thing for us to do, but when we bite our tongues... When we, when we don't speak to people who have an evident hardness of heart, we are joining in their condemnation. Like we, we are not helping them turn to the source of salvation. 
We are letting them become hardened in their, heart, in their hardness of heart and their disobedience to God. And so when we see this screening applied to others, we must evaluate the present tense of their life, not just the past. Like, are they trusting in Christ now is the question. Not just did they trust in him then, but are they trusting him now? Are they continuing to press on in faith? And our faith doesn't gain us a share in Christ. It's not like, he doesn't say we come to share in Christ by holding our original confidence to the end. He says we share in Christ if we hold our confidence to the end. There's a, it's a correlation, not a cause, right? Like, our persistence in faith is proof of our, of our sharing in Christ, right? It's not the grounding of it, if that makes sense. All right, last point, and I'll have to go quickly through this. If we've talked about a, a warning and a screening, I think the last thing that this text does, and this is where it rubber meets the road the most, is that the author gives us a, a treatment plan of sorts. Uh, what do we do? Like if we see hardness of heart creeping into us, if we see it creeping into others, what do we actually do? How do we actually treat it? And this is where I would return to the main point. Is I would say that the remedy of hardness of heart is consistency of Christian exhortation. If you look at verse 12, he says this warning, Take care lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart that will lead you to fall away from the living God. And then he tells us in verse 13 how to prevent it, how to address it when we see hardness of heart setting in to a person, including ourselves. He says in verse 13, here's the treatment plan, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. And then he says the result, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So very simply, he tells them that the treatment for a hard heart or the way to even prevent a hard heart is by exhorting each other every day. It's a very simple statement. There's much that could be said about that. But we are to exhort each other every day. And so note he says, exhort one another, right? If we're going to avoid hardness of heart in ourselves or in each other, we need each other for that. I think we have so many DIY books and articles and things say, we think if I just put my mind to it and work hard at something, I can accomplish it. I can keep certain things from happening. I can ensure a certain thing happens. The hardness of heart that can set into us can only be combated by having brothers or sisters around us. We need one another if we're going to avoid a hardness of heart. We are fools. I would say directly to any of you in the room, you are a fool if you think that you can avoid a hardness of heart by just living out on your own as a Christian. That, that you can just live apart from other brothers and the sisters and the Lord and you'll be fine. You will not be fine. Like you will slowly drift from the Lord. You will slowly have a hardness of heart creep into you. A disregard for Jesus and it'll be so subtle you will not even realize it. But it will happen. Like we need each other to, to help us prevent and to treat a hardness of heart. And he says that what we do for each other is exhort one another. Exhort one another. NIV says to encourage one another. That, that word he uses there is a very broad word in meaning. It could mean... It could even be translated all sorts of ways, like to comfort people, comfort each other, urge each other, 
Reprove each other, invite each other towards something, appeal to each other, entreat each other. It's, it's a very broad word, but it's this speech-oriented. Uh, it's a word actually used of the Holy Spirit a lot and what he does for us. But we're to do that for each other. We're to, to challenge each other, remind each other, console each other, comfort each other. Those are the types of words that we need to speak to each other. And it, it needs to be distinctly Christian exhortation. Like when we see hardness of heart developing in us or in someone else, the last thing we need is just telling somebody to suck it up or try harder. Like, you know better than this. Like, that is not Christianity. Like, Christian exhortation is pointing people to the cross of Jesus. It's not just saying, pull yourself up and shape up and what are you doing? Like, those aren't Christian exhortations. Secular people say that to each other. What Christian people do is we point to the cross and say, brother, sister, Jesus died for you. Like the very sin that you're running to was nailed upon the cross. How can you run back to it? Like you have forgiveness there. You have the spirit of God in you like to help you actually put this to death. That is what Christians do for each other. It's not just to to punch each other and knock each other down, but it's to point each other to the cross. That's the type of exhortation that we provide for each other and that is what will keep our hearts soft. And we are, I would last thing note that we are to exhort one another every day. Don't read past that. That we need ongoing exhortation from fellow Christians. It's not even just on Sunday I need exhortation and I'm good to go till the next Sunday. He is saying that we need this consistent speech toward each other, this consistent speaking life to each other, exhorting each other to come back to Christ for forgiveness and for direction. We need it every single day. We need a consistency of Christian exhortation. Using this metaphor of the exodus that, that he's using here, uh, I would want us to think in closing of our life kind of being between Egypt and Canaan. Uh, that, that we in this room, I think most of us, believe we have been freed from the slavery of sin. We've been brought out of the spiritual Egypt, right? But we are not yet in the spiritual Canaan. We are not yet in the promised land of God. That that is a rest that remains still yet for us. And in between those two points, between our deliverance that comes through the cross of Jesus and our, our entrance into the gates of heaven someday, we must press on in faith. And when we sense a hardness of heart that is a threat to that, we must address it in ourselves and each other, lest we will have verse 19 become true of us, that we will be unable to enter because of unbelief. There's some, I'm sure, in the room, and I've been praying for you this last few days, there's some of you in the room who, as you hear about a hardness of heart, you would acknowledge that is me through and through. Like a hardness of heart maybe is an understatement for me. I don't trust God. I have not obeyed him. I haven't trusted in him. There is no way I'm entering into the promised land. There's no way I'm gaining entrance into heaven. If God wouldn't let them in, he is certainly not letting me in. And you're feeling your unworthiness, your hardness of heart today. What I want to urge you to is to not just try to find your own way to impress God and to gain entrance That generation in in the Exodus, do you know what they did after God said, you cannot enter? They tried to enter. 
right? If you go back and read uh, in Numbers chapter 14, they tried to, after God said no, they tried to just do it themselves and say, well, we'll no, God, like we're serious this time. We'll go fight, God. Like we'll, we'll go into the promised land. We'll do it. They tried to find their own way into the promised land and God let them get routed. Like God said, no, you will not enter by your own efforts. Like if you're going to come into the the land of promise, it'll be because I grant it to you, because I let you in. And anybody who is feeling the hardness of heart in this room this morning, you're feeling, I cannot enter in. What I am telling you is to not try to just enter on your own merit, to just try to find your own path into the promised land, because God has already told you how to enter. The way that you can enter into the rest of God isn't by becoming a good person. It's not just by cleaning up your life and making sure your butt is in a seat here every Sunday or giving money to the church or making sure you do all the right things. The path toward the land of promise, the path to the rest of God goes right through the cross of Christ. That is the only way that you can enter is that Christ has borne your sin. He has suffered for you upon the cross. He he has gained you forgiveness by suffering in your place at the cross and he's been raised from the dead to show you that you can be raised and that you can be received back to God. And the way that you can enter into the rest of God isn't just by executing this treatment plan and saying, I'm gonna make sure I get Christian exhortation. I'm gonna fix this. I'm gonna clean this thing up, God. But it's to to lay down your efforts, to acknowledge your hardness of heart. Say, God, I can't fix myself. Please forgive me. Like, I know Christ has died for me. I know he's been raised. Please receive me. Please welcome me into your rest, and he will. There's lyrics I wanted to end with from an old hymn called Jesus is Our God and Savior. And, and in hearing these commands to not harden our hearts, and it can feel like more rules I just need to do, I wanted to just read this in closing, and then I'll pray, and we'll sing. But there's lyrics from this old hymn say, Law and terror do but harden. All the while they work alone, but a sense of blood-brought pardon soon dissolves a heart of stone. And if you feel a hardness of heart in yourself, the way that it is resolved isn't by just doing more and by trying harder, but it is by looking to the cross of Christ and saying that Christ bought your pardon. That is what will soften your heart. That is what will soften the heart of anyone in this world is the blood-bought pardon of Christ. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful even for weighty texts like this one. God, I I pray that we would be attentive to it, to the warning that's possessed in it. I pray that we would do serious introspection today, uh, that we would evaluate our own hearts and to see where there may be hardness that has started to set in, where we've uh, developed unbelief, where we've developed distrust of you, where we maybe have developed a disrespect for you a disregard of you, or even a disobedience toward you. God, I pray where those things have started to set in, even on the fringes, that we would address them, that that we would even have others address us on those things and call us back to obedience, call us back to our original confidence, which is the cross of Christ. And so may you help us as a church to live for you, to, to have softened hearts individually and collectively. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand where you are. We're going to sing.